We are in the book of Acts, and um, we're picking it up at chapter 9. What we're doing is we're going through the entire New Testament, since the Gospels, we're going to go through all the New Testament, uh, every book, everything, and we're trying to do it in order of when the uh, books were written and when they were speaking to the church. So we're starting with the book of Acts, and as we go along with the book of Acts, we'll be cutting away to some of the epistles, the letters that were written at that time, keep it all in context and in order. Now, what has happened is the church has been off to just a glorious start. Uh, Peter and the the disciples were uh, all freaked out and full of fear after they crucified Jesus. The day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit fills them, and now they are filled with boldness and energy, and the place is going nuts. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. Uh, They're starting kind of their own little Christian commune. People are selling stuff they don't need and bringing it, and everybody's sharing, and of course, they all thought Jesus was coming back right away. Why do you need stuff if, if Jesus come back right away? But they've got this real exciting thing, miracles like crazy, uh, by the hands of the apostles and doing all kinds of incredible things. But then we start to see a shift, and it's really rather dramatic. And I don't think, I'm sure none of them saw this coming. And what eventually happens, I know they didn't think they knew was coming. Because what starts to happen is the church starts to turn into something that they never truly expected. Quite frankly, I don't think they could have handled it uh, in the beginning. And you know, God has a way of baby stepping us through our faith, right? You don't have to try and figure out everything overnight. That's why I think we need to be patient with people who are new in their faith. You don't got to hammer and jump on them every time they don't get something exactly right or stuff. Uh, Now, if you're a very mature Christian and you know better and you're doing wrong, then we tend to hammer you. (laughs) But if you you know, are young in your faith and you're struggling and we kind of walk people through it and uh, they don't have to get everything all at one moment. And certainly, so what happens is already we're starting to see the pull away from the attention of just the apostles. Uh, uh, Peter remains a key figure for a while, but then even he starts to fade out. Uh, Now for the last Several people we've been looking at, uh, they, they had these deacons that came in because the church was fighting over stuff, so they brought in these deacons. One was Stephen, one was Philip, these guys. Well, then we read about Stephen, and he's preaching like crazy, and he's doing miracles. And they stone him to death, the, the enemies of the cross. And then Philip goes around, and he's doing all kinds of miracles, and great things are happening to him. These guys are not apostles, okay? Uh, and I think what's really happening is from my viewpoint, as I've been studying this and looking at this, because again, by the time we're done, uh, the church looks so different than the way it starts out and what they thought it would be. I think God has really trying, really was set out from the beginning to establish that the church isn't about who, obviously Jesus being there because he's not physically there more, and then even the apostles, people who were there, we would think really highly of because they were with Jesus, but even then. They start to take a more minor role. It's really rather stunning. Uh, We know that in eternity, the 12 apostles are going to be in a special place with Jesus because they were with him through all this stuff. But as far as the church goes, they don't have that much to say about stuff. In fact, most of the New Testament, very little little of it is written by the apostles. We got two small letters from Peter, uh, and then John wrote uh, a couple of letters, kind of circular. (laughs) Tough reading him, but we'll get to that. Uh, and then that's it. The rest of it are filled with people, even the, some of the gospels, by people who weren't there at all. I think to really establish the fact that Christianity is not based on people who could see and feel and touch Jesus. It's about faith. And the more separated people got from this, the more powerful the church became, and it became not about who was there at a certain time or experienced this side or the other, but people who by faith were experiencing Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they went to change the world, and it just kept going, and it didn't matter who you were. Even if you were a lower status in the church, people were doing all kinds of miracles, and it was really rather stunning. So we're starting to see a shift. It shifts over to Stephen. He's doing amazing things. Philip's doing amazing things, okay? Then we get to chapter 9. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Saul. Saul is this guy who approved and took the uh, credit under his authority for the stoning of Stephen to death. So meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's on a rampage. He hates Christians with a passion. And he's not just giving them a hard time. He's trying to destroy their lives. So he's out on his murderous threats against the disciples 
uh, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, <clears throat> which is now a ways away. Now, I told you last week I'd ordered these very cool Bible maps so we could follow it. They didn't show up, all right? They sent me the tripod. Because <laughs> I called them this morning, I said, you sent me the tripod. Well, the maps were backward and we, we wanted to send you something. <laughs> so what am I gonna do with a tripod? They were so apologetic, you know. Theoretically, I'll have them by Friday, we'll see. But we'll give you the big imaginary map here, as you see, okay? North, south, east, and west. All right, backwards for me, but that's the way you would see it. So uh, what we have is uh, Judea, where Jerusalem and stuff is, and Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee and went to Galilee and stuff like that. Uh, so And in between the two is Samaria, which everybody kind of thought they were kind of half-breed Jews. But right away, the Samaritans start experiencing a f faith. And, well, you follow the church accepting the Samaritans. They're having big revivals, and that's where Philip was out preaching the gospel out through Samaria and all this stuff. And the apostles came up, were laying hands on people to re receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're having a great time. So they're letting the Samaritans in because they're, they're Jews, but they're not really pure like they should be, but they were pure enough that they let them in. They still don't have this idea of non-Jews being Christians. So you got, you got this area here, and then way up here is Damascus in, in Syria. Uh, so uh, by now Christianity, because of actually Saul coming in and bringing all this persecution, they spread out. They start taking off everywhere. They're trying to stamp out Christianity, but what they did was wind up spreading it everywhere. And now it's way up in uh, Damascus. Uh, so Saul, who's going through Judea and stuff, persecuting all these Christians, said, man, I heard that it spread way up here. Give me permission to go up. Because, uh, you know, you had to have authority and stuff to do different things and prosecute in different areas where you didn't normally have jurisdictions and stuff. There was the legal stuff. And Paul was very intelligent, knew the laws and the legalities and stuff. So he goes to the uh, Jewish leaders, who at this point love Saul. He's bringing the heat, man. They couldn't do it, but he's doing it. And he's busting these people and arresting them and approving of, of their deaths and stuff. So he goes to the head guys and, and wants letters to the synagogues in Damascus so he'd have the authority so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. That's what Christians were called in the beginning. People who belonged to the way. That was the way they would reference them. That was their only reference. They didn't use the word Christian yet. We're going to see later when the word Christian starts coming in. But they didn't know what to call them. Those guys that follow that thing, the way they pray and the way they do this, and pretty soon it was called the way. So we want letters to find anybody who belongs to the way, whether men or women, so he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on his threats. He goes out as he nears Damascus on his journey. So he's way pushing up north, cruising along, just fired up, mean as a rattlesnake. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you? He doesn't know what's going on. All of a sudden, he gets knocked down. He hears his voice, and the answer is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you have got to try and get a picture in your mind. The shock. The shock and the horror and the amazement of what Saul just heard. He truly believes he's doing God's will. He truly believes these Christians are a threat to the Jewish faith. God wants me to stamp out these people. He's gonna go persecute them, make their lives a living hell, do everything he can so that people will not turn to Christianity. And he gets knocked to the ground by an invisible force and hears a voice from someone he cannot see and he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're ch chasing and persecuting. Man, the sh it was one thing to get knocked to the ground. It's another thing to hear voices out of nowhere. It's another thing to hear that. And I'm pretty sure that had him more shocked than anything. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, of course, Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. Well, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Now, these cats were part of his... 
the entourage that came from Jerusalem, they all hated the Christians. They were all part of this deal. So the Bible says that they didn't see anything, but they heard the sound. They all heard it. It wasn't just Saul who fell fell to the ground and heard this voice. All these guys heard it. Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Holy cow. Because these are, now, I don't know what went through Saul. It had to be a shock of just astronomic proportions, but all of them had to be shocked out of their ever-loving minds. Now, we don't know. We know that Paul becomes a Christian. We don't know if any of the other ones did. Who know, you would think some of them. I mean, wouldn't you <laughs> go along and say, stuff flying, voices come out, my name is Jesus? I'd pretty much believe at that point. But we know that these people are incredibly stubborn. I mean, there was people who saw the miracles who still did not believe. Now, undoubtedly, these guys, if they did not become Christians, went and told the authorities what happened. What happened to Saul? Dudes, you're not going to believe this. We're going along. Flash. He falls to the ground. This voice says, I'm Jesus. You better start doing what I tell you to do. And you would think they would be converted, but they didn't. See, they saw miracles. They saw these people, the people who were in charge, who saw all these miracles and were into this. I know it's a terrible phrase to say someone has a special place in hell, but man, those guys have got to have one. These were the most hard-hearted men that you could even begin to imagine. They saw the miracles. They heard the testimonies. It was all right there in front of their faces, and they refused to believe because it messed with their status and their egos and everything else. It's just stunning. So the men traveling with Saul, they heard, they, uh, they heard the sound. They stood there speechless. <laughs> what are you going to say? They heard something, they didn't see anyone. Well, Saul gets up from the ground, but when he opens his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind, and he starts to fast right away. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink anything. Now, what has got to be going through his mind for these three days? Who he is, what he believes. This is no small deal, okay? This isn't some guy who was, you know, he was an alcoholic and drunk and Jesus spoke to his heart and he repented. I mean, this is some guy. He is an intensely disciplined religious man. Everything his entire life has put him on a certain path. He believes Christianity is a threat to that path. He has a zeal and intensity that even some of the greatest enemies of Christianity did not have, and he was going out and prosecuting the case against these Christians. And to have that experience and be sitting there blind and doing nothing but trying to process this for three days. He won't eat anything. He won't drink anything. I mean, the man is in a state of shock. This is no small deal. Now, at some point, um, God starts to speak to him. It doesn't really tell us. We find this out in the next verse. It says in verse 10, now, in Damascus, there was a disciple, a a person who was a Christian, named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, he starts having this vision. And he goes, yes, Lord. And the Lord told him, you need to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So that's how we know God is starting to speak to Saul. So in this time of reflection and this fasting, he can't see anything. He sees a vision of a Christian coming to him by specifically uh, the, uh, the name of Ananias and lay hands on him, pray for him so that he, re- he could receive his sight. Clearly, by this time, Saul no longer is a doubter. He's a believer at this point. His life has changed. He's having spiritual experiences. What's messing with him, who knows, but he cannot deny what he has seen, what he's experienced, and how he's having these visions. And so he has this vision of this guy named Ananias to come and pray for him. So God says, hey, Ananias, you need to go over there because he had a vision that you're going to go pray for. And uh, and Ananias says, uh, Listen, (laughs) I've heard a lot about this guy and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, and I love this, go, exclamation point. He wasn't there to reason with the boy. Just do it. 
You ever feel like that? Especially with your kids. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now this, again, is just, what? What about Peter and John and James and all these apostles? How come they're not playing major roles? They don't start playing major roles. Again, we see Peter for a while, but then he starts fading out. It all becomes this guy, Paul. Paul is the single greatest influence on the Christian experience of anybody in history. His writings, I mean, who is this guy? He comes out of nowhere. He's created, he is like, he is to Christians what, uh, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden was to Americans. Everybody was afraid of this guy. They hated him. They wanted to put him out. And now all of a sudden, he gets on their side. It's like if Osama says, I want to become an American. <laughs> I mean, of course, we'd all shoot him, but uh, Christians, you can't do that. So this guy converts. I mean, this is radical, amazing stuff. And now Saul, who's going to, he's going to have his name changed to Paul eventually, you see this, uh, becomes the single greatest voice in Christianity. And much of the New Testament is written by, and the Gospels recorded by people who were not there. They didn't see any of it, but yet they have this major role. And then the church, obviously, at some point, becomes full of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. At this point, the only believers are Jewish people. In fact, they didn't think you could be a Christian if you weren't Jewish. And, uh, you know, some of these guys, as they're spreading around the gospel, history tells us, and the Bible tells us, that they primarily went to Jews when they spread around. But then some of them started spilling over to non-Jews and some of these Greeks, and they all start getting converted. And, they, and what they're finding is people, everyone's getting converted. You don't have to be Jewish, and, and this is messing with their heads. What they're thinking is Jesus has come first, and the gospel says it comes first to his people, right? Even Paul initially says, look, the gospel's first to the Jew and then to the Greek. You would think Christianity is something that is made up primarily of Jews, but then you know, non-Jews can get in on it, and that's, but eventually what happens is this initial vision that they had of Jewish Christians who allow Gentiles to come in actually begins to fizzle out. Uh, pretty much by the end of the first hundred years, and uh, they were gone. Um, historically, I think it went maybe as far as 400 years, but they kept getting smaller and smaller. The Jews at some point started hating all Christians, and they didn't want them, and the, all the uh, Gentile Christians didn't like their strict rules because they were Jewish and they had to do all these rules and they eventually got squeezed out into nothing. Eventually, we will see in the end that the Jewish people are still not out of this. In the end, they turn to Jesus uh, in the book of Revelation and then this original vision does come to pass. But we are like in this middle ground. No one would have ever dreamed it would have been 2,000 years. I'm glad because we're getting in on it. But this is a radical change from what any of them if all of us would have been there and we saw what Jesus did and believed and saw the apostles and believed, we would have clearly thought these guys will now be the dominant voices of Christianity. But they don't become. The guys who actually witness it themselves become quieter and quieter voices. Uh, there's still some voice, you know, John writes about it, you know, but uh, it's, it's truly stunning what happens here. And now things are starting to turn in a radical direction. So this guy who no one even believes could be a Christian, is going to be the guy. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it because God told him, go. So placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, <laughs> that'd be hard to get those words out, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, so he told him all this stuff, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. At this point, we got total conversion at this point. Now, you'll notice that in the book of Acts, there are, and, and I know people get upset about this because of some of their teaching. And if this messes with you, just, you know, hum a song in your head and ignore me for a while. But uh, the reality is, in the New Testament, there are distinct teachings of repentance, believe, believing, repenting, being baptized, and receiving the Holy Spirit. They are distinct experiences. Now, what people have tried to get us to today to make it as easy as possible, well, when you believe in Jesus, you get all that all at one time. 
But that's not what we see here. Now, that opens up for all kinds. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? How do you debate that? Look, we'll get into this. It takes a while to go through this stuff and start getting a picture of what we're even talking about. But they are distinct experiences. And uh, and we're going to emphasize this as we go along. Now, what starts happening is they start happening in different order. So it starts messing with your head. You know, nothing messes with your theology like the Bible. Just as soon as you got to figure it out, that didn't make any sense. So we're going to see. Now, what happens with Paul, apparently he's already a believer. He comes... He says, well, he received the Holy Spirit. What happened? Did he speak in tongues? We don't know. We assume. We know for sure that Paul later said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So what happened at some point, at this point, the only thing they ever say about the Holy Spirit is this tongue thing, which I know messes with some people's heads. All right, so anyway, boom, he gets up, and now he's baptized. So before it was believe, repent, uh, be baptized, Holy Spirit. Well, in this case, you know, He's got to believe and repent right away in this incredible experience. Uh, and then he receives the Holy Spirit, and his eyes are open, and then he's baptized. So the order's starting to get mixed around a little bit. Uh, so the order at some point, you know, gets a little confusing, but we'll get into that as we go. So anyway, Saul is now a Christian. He is totally convinced after this experience that Jesus is the Christ. Well, he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So at once, he begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Now, how can he go immediately from just a few days into Christian to knowing so much that he could go out into these Jewish synagogues among these very intelligent, well-educated people, especially in their faith, and start preaching Jesus? Well, it's because he was so educated. He knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. When it dawns on him that those verses are referring to Jesus as the Messiah, this is an easy step for him. He walks in and he just starts nailing it. And he starts proving from the scriptures. And I'm sure, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're on the other side of things, things become more clear. (laughs) All of a sudden, some of these scriptures that maybe weren't real clear comes real clear to him because he knows who Jesus is. Well, that's what that meant. And that's what this means in the Old Testament. So he, within days, is walking into the synagogues and he is hammering them because he probably knows it better than the guys that are sitting in there including the rabbis. I mean, this guy, Paul, was highly educated. Uh, So he goes in and he's doing this. Now, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the guy (laughs) who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? They all knew why he was there. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So how do you prove that? What they're talking about is scripturally. He knew the scriptures. And by the scriptures and through the scriptures, he proved that Jesus Christ fulfilled these verses and is, in fact, the Messiah. Well, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. <laughs> you can't just disagree with people. <laughs> they got to kill people. So and there's a lot, you know, this is 2,000 years ago. People are a little nuts. Some nuts ones today still, but their version of I disagree with you is let me kill you. So they plan, we got to kill this guy. But Saul learns of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in the wall. So here is this man who comes in with all this pomp and circumstance and power into into Damascus with all this authority is now being lowered in a basket (laughs) in the middle of the night. You know, so he can and run away because they're all going to try and kill him. So, uh, wow, pretty wild. So anyway, verse 26, when he comes to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. And you can understand that. Man, he had my cousin and his wife. They lost everything. They threw him in jail. He's, He's just here to find out who we are so he can kill us all. Right? You're thinking, oh my goodness, he's sneaking into our midst. So uh, nobody was having, he was having a hard time. He's trying to join, be a Christian, and nobody would have anything to do with him because they're scared to death of him for a reason. But then Barnabas, you remember Barnabas? We talked about Barnabas, I think it was the end of chapter five or whatever, just before we read the story about Ananias and Sapphira, where Barnabas was this guy who they called him the son of encouragement, you know, and he was one of the first guys, it records in the Bible that in the New Testament sold a bunch of stuff he didn't need and he gave it to the church, all as part of this big Christian commune thing. And then that's when we read about Ananias and Sapphira who were trying to fool everybody that they'd given everything when they hadn't. They were liars and they were doing it for ego and 
They both dropped dead. Kind of an intense reaction there. But uh, so anyway, Barnabas, this guy that we read about. Now, Barnabas meets Saul, and he believes him. Sweet Barnabas, this great, wonderful heart. So he takes him, and he brings him to the apostles. Remember, he's trying to get just the believers, the disciples. They're all freaking out. Barnabas has the inside track. He brings him to the apostles. He told them of how, uh, how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Everybody tried to kill Paul. <laughs> Poor Paul. Everybody hated him. His whole life he was running from being arrested and beaten and killed. Remember what Jesus said to Ananias. Hey, you let me worry about this guy. You go pray for him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my kingdom. And it starts right away with the coming down in a basket and running for his life. And it really seemed to never let up, primarily because he was so powerful and effective. I mean, it's just wow. I mean, he was just frying everybody. So they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took Paul and, uh, down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Saul and Barnabas and whoever's with them, they all go off to Tarsus while... Uh, uh, you know, letting things calm down because everybody's freaked out because of what Saul is doing. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Why? Because their chief persecutor <laughs> was gone. And he converts. And the heat is off him now. So they enjoy this time of peace. And uh, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria were strengthened. It was great. Again, it sounds like Samaria is the last one. They always mention the last because they didn't really like the Samaritans that much. But it was really Judea, Galilee, and Samaritans were in between. Again, they didn't like them so much. But. So now everybody's doing good. They were living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and increased in numbers. So Christianity is spreading like crazy, still primarily among Jewish people. All right? This is what we're talking about believers. These are Jewish people who are accepting Jesus as the Messiah and having this massive transformative experience. All right, so now Peter, so Peter's traveling around the country, and he's checking on everybody. So he went to visit uh, the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Now, again, if you're looking at Judea, we'll see it on the map. <laughs> For real, I think. If nothing else, I'll just set up the tripod. Uh, but we got Lydda, or, or, or here, and Jerusalem's like here, and you got to kind of go northwest up here to get to Lydda. So he's out here, still kind of in Judea. He's not in Samaria or up here, uh, still hanging around the home base, but he's going on. He just wants to encourage all these believers. So, so he gets to live, and there he found a man named Aeneas. A a a <laughs> I want to say Aeneas. I know, it's horrible. That's all, I've been struggling not to say it that way. Aeneas. Aeneas. Is that how I said? Aeneas. Don't call your that kid's that. All right. So he sees this guy, and Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, we don't know that this guy was a believer at all. He just saw him. And just like we've seen in some of the other times where these apostles would come up, grab somebody, and just pull them up, and instantly they're taking miracles. Now, as we saw with the case of uh, Ananias and, and Saul, we got the kind of inside backdoor scoop. Paul, Saul saw this vision of Ananias coming. Ananias has this vision and told to go do that and given all the details of what to do. So he goes and he does that. Now, if you didn't know the backstory, you would just think Ananias walks in and says, be healed, okay, and not know this. So we don't know. Did uh, Peter have... Insight ahead of time, this is what was going to happen. You're going to see this guy and pray for him. Is that what he did with that guy who was crippled by the gate? We don't know. Um, some people think, well, no, you're just supposed to go and boldly just grab people and heal them. We kind of discourage that, you know. You see somebody at Walmart in a wheelchair, don't go grabbing him and pulling him out. Be healed! You know, as he flops on the floor or something like that, okay? That'd be very embarrassing. They say, well, if I have the faith, okay, if you got the faith. I, maybe it was instantaneous faith, I don't know. I have a sense that these guys knew what was going to happen before it happened. 
if that makes any sense. A lot of times, they had insight. One of the things of the, of the Holy Spirit is he's supposed to tell you things to come. They, they, they had advanced insight on stuff, just like with Ananias. So we look at some of these things. We don't know the backstory. We don't know if that just happened instantaneously. Sometimes maybe it did. We'll see, but we don't know that. My guess is with some of these dramatic miracles like that, they saw something coming, and they could go dramatically. We're going to see in just a minute that he approached another lady differently, and he had to pray first, I think, because he didn't have advanced knowledge. So I tend to think the way they did some of these dramatic things, they were having a preview of what to do before they got there, just like Ananias. Total assumption on my part, but I think it's a fair assumption. Uh, I, and again, I, unless you have a vision or you really know they know, I wouldn't go just sticking your face in people's, running through the hospitals and trying to heal everybody. Uh, and there's Christians who do that. I mean, they really think, that, and, and it's all embarrassing because nobody gets healed, and they're just, they're just obnoxious. All right. So, but boom, this guy, we don't know if he was even a Christian. There's no sign that he was. All of a sudden, he just, look, here's a sick guy. He has been bedridden for eight years. He comes up. Boom, he's instantly healed. Everybody knows that's very impressive. My guess, the Lord had directed him in this manner. Now, in Joppa, which is, uh, I'm trying to remember my map in my head, so like uh, uh, Lydda is here, and then you go to the coast, just a little bit further north and, and west, and you get to the coast. Now there's the Mediterranean Sea, you can't go any further west, and it's this, it's this coastal city called Joppa. And now, so he goes there. There was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Tabitha sounds nicer. <laughs> hey, Dork. Uh, so, now she was a nice lady. She was a believer. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, what was also going on, she becomes sick and she dies. And her body was washed and placed in an upper stairs room, you know, like they normally do, getting ready for the burial and stuff. And Lydda was near Joppa. So uh, they go grab Peter, bring him to Joppa. That's when they brought him to uh, Joppa. And uh, they heard that Peter was there. They brought him, whatever I just said. He said, please come at once. So verse 39, Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And Peter got them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees and prayed. Again, see, now there's a different approach. Why? My guess is if he would have had a vision or something, he knew it, he would have just went over right away and boom, said, Dorcas, get up. But he didn't in this time. So he stops and prays. And at some point, we don't know how long, what the deal is. Again, we don't know what, they don't tell us everything that happened. All we know is he prays, and then at some point, he turns toward the dead woman and says, Tabitha, get up. <laughs> and she opened her eyes. <laughs> I would have a heart attack, man. <laughs> And seeing Peter, she sits up. And he takes her by the hand, helps her to her feet. And then he calls everybody and says, hey, y'all. And especially the widows and presented to her, her to them alive. And they were fried. And this became known all over Joppa. And many of the people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa in this coastal town. Now that's where he's at. Uh, for some time with a tanner named Simon. All right? Now we are getting ready for another major seismic shift that is about to happen. Uh, they don't know it's a seismic shift yet, yet with, uh, with Paul, because Saul, who's going to become Paul, because they don't know what he's going to wind up doing. Uh, in fact, I remember I told you when, when the uh, 11 uh, uh, apostles in the beginning drew lots to find the next apostle, some people said they shouldn't have done that, that it should have been uh, Paul. My guess is probably not. I don't know. It's sometimes I think it is. Sometimes and after thinking this through, I think intentionally God started using people who weren't there. He didn't see anything. And it's all by faith. It's quite stunning. Uh, so anyway, that seismic shift is about to kick in, major. But this next one is a big deal. Again, we're still seeing a lot of Peter, but then he starts to fade. Now, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Where's Caesarea? It's north. It's also a coastal town from uh, Joppa. So there's a guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion uh, in what is known as the Italian regiment. He is a Roman soldier. You think they didn't like the Samaritans. You should have seen what they thought about the Romans. They hated them with a passion you cannot believe. These guys were an invading army. They were an occupying army. They hated their guts. Uh, Jews were constantly rebelling against the Romans. At some point... 
uh, it was about 70 AD or something like that, the Romans come in and they totally destroy Jerusalem. They kill everybody because they had it up to here with these insurrections and stuff because they were so rebellious because they hated these Romans. Um, you remember, give, give a, you want Jesus or Barabbas? They all yell, give us Barabbas. Well, Barabbas had been in charge of some kind of, trying to do an insurrection and you know, killed somebody and they, they let him go. Uh, so they really hated the Romans. So here's Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's, he's got... Uh, was it 100 men? Probably why they call him Centurion. I don't know. But uh, he's in charge of the uh, part of the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God fearing from a Jewish perspective. In other words, they would allow Gentiles. There was the court of the Gentiles where they could kind and come and look in and they could say their prayers and stuff. But unless they were circumcised and unless they'd become ceremonial clean and converted to Judaism, they were still on the outside looking in. So here's a guy, he's on the outside looking in. Uh, but he was a nice guy. He was trying to find God. He was praying and stuff. Of course, he couldn't get in because he wasn't Jewish. Most of us here would not have been allowed in because we were not Jewish. If you wanted to, and there were some who did become Jews, but you had to get circumcised and you had to go through all the rituals and everything else like that. And then eventually uh, you could have been accepted in. But if it would have stayed the way it was, we're all kind of on the outside looking in. We couldn't really go in and be a part of things. So that's what he's doing. Now, he's a nice guy. He's trying to find God in his heart. He's a generous man. He gave generously to those who need. He prayed to God regularly. Well, one day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, God... God has seen you. Now, that doesn't mean you can earn uh, your way to God. You can't just do good things and wipe away your sins. That's, that's not how this works. But it certainly showed his heart. He was really wanting to know God, and that got God's attention and, uh, and brought him to Jesus where he could be saved. See, that wouldn't save him, but it did get God's attention. So, uh, so he, the angel says to him, now send men to Joppa, to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Sounds like a song. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, because he's a man of authority, he's a centurion, and he tells them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay? Peter doesn't know Jack. He's just chilling out. He's in Joppa. He's hanging out. He's staying with this guy named Simon. He's got this nice house on the, on the water. All right? Good life. Well, about noon the following day, as they're approaching on their journey and approaching the city, uh, Peter went on the roof to pray. So he just get along. He's to pray. And he becomes hungry. He wants something to eat. And while the meal is being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. And in this thing that's being let down is contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Well, he said, well, what's the big deal? They weren't allowed to eat this stuff, all right? You know, they can't even have a hot dog unless it's <laughs> a kosher hot dog. I mean, strict Judaism? You think, well, they just can't eat bacon. No, they can't eat all kinds of stuff. It, it's a really strict religion. All of his life, he'd been taught the rules about eating. When Jesus was with them, Jesus also observed the rules about eating. This is radical. No one saw this coming. Jesus clearly knew it was coming. But uh, uh, so all of a sudden, this sheep comes out, hey, there's a bunch of critters. You know, go eat some critters. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. I have never taken anything impure or unclean. Now, he's not being rebellious. It's like, now, this is a bad example. Well, I don't know what else to choose. It's like an angel comes to you and says, hey, go cheat on your wife. No way, I would never do that because you're doing it for the right reasons. By the way, if an angel tells you that, it's one of these angels, all right? But it was almost to that, to these guys. You don't understand. 
This, this was all on the same set. There are rules and stuff. This is like serious stuff. When he says, no way, he's not being rebellious. He's, no, I, I would never do such a terrible thing. So the voice spoke to him a second time. Said, hey, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, three times he has this vision. And this sheet is being let down. Hey, go eat. No, I can't do that. It's not clean. Don't call something unclean that God has made clean. Well, so this happens three times, and then she was taken back to heaven. Now, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, and it didn't take long for him to start understanding what, what it meant, because um, we're going to read here in a minute that when he goes with these guys, he said, well, the Lord has already shown me not to be so mean to you, you Gentiles. He was getting the connection. Uh, that, that's coming here. So he's just thinking about what he just saw. I mean, it's a vision. It's like, you know, wow. And uh, so while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius find out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. And they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Holy Spirit says to him, hey, Simon, go down. Three guys are looking for you. <laughs> so cool. So get them go downstairs. They didn't have to ring the bell. How cool is this? So don't hesitate to go with them, for I sent you. Why would the Lord say don't hesitate to go with them? They're Gentiles. You don't associate with these people. The closest picture that we can get for this would be America 1950s, early 1960s, and, you know, some black guys come to your house and, you know, say, you know, let, let's go, some, go and get something to eat well. You know, if you're a hardcore white racist, there's no way. We don't have anything to do with these people. Thank God we don't think like that anymore, but idiots used to think that way. Well, that's just a piece of what these guys thought. I mean, not only was it racism, anybody who wasn't Jewish to them was just above a chicken and a frog, okay? But they were unclean, would have nothing. You know how we used to say, you know, and people are terrible, you know, people that don't look like us, well, they got different kinds of diseases, all kinds of stupid stuff that they would say. Well, the Jews clearly thought this about people. They went out of their way to be really, really, really clean. Remember, they had a fit because Jesus' disciples were going along one day and they were picking uh, the, the top kernels of the wheat, popping it in their mouths without washing their hands first. The, the Pharisees went, ah, you can't do that. Of course, Jesus said, you know, relax, check your medication. But they were still really, really strict because they were super clean and everything had to be done this way and that way. Man, read the law of Moses. This is intense in terms of... Well, now the Gentiles don't do any of that stuff. You can imagine the rumors in their minds, you know, of the filth and the disgust. So when they got around these people, it was racism, it was religious prejudice, it was, ooh, they got cooties, these people, oh my gosh. So these guys show up. One of them's a Roman soldier and says, listen, this guy had a vision. We're supposed to go. So God tells him, listen, go with him. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Well, the Lord didn't tell him <laughs> to ask that. <laughs> he said, well, we've come from Cornelius the centurion, a Roman. He's a righteous and God-fearing man. I don't think it made a whole lot to them. He's respected by all the Jewish people. They liked him. He was a nice scuzz bag. But a holy angel told him to ask for you to come to his house so they could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guest. I mean, he's a little nervous here. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along because, you know, I need a little backup boys. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. How many this is, we don't know, but I, my guess is a pretty good group of people. And by undoubtedly, you know, they knew who he was and that he was trying to connect to God and he was trying to even pray to this Jewish God. Of course, he could only do it limited because you know, he wasn't Jewish, but he was just being nice and he's still praying and he's doing nice things for people. He has this vision. Undoubtedly, he's telling everybody this vision and stuff and this is what's gonna happen. And it wasn't like they had cell phones. Hey, we found him, we're on our way back. You know, they don't know. All of a sudden, he shows up uh, and as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence to bow down to him. You're a Roman, so what do you know? I mean, these guys, their, their understanding of God is very limited. This angel tells them about this holy man to bring. Here's the holy man. They bow down to the holy man. 
And Peter said, get, get up. Man, I'm only a man myself. All right, none of this man worship stuff. So while talking with him, Peter went inside and found this, well, there's my answer, a large gathering of people. And he said to them, well, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. In other words, his opening words were, I really shouldn't be here with you people. <laughs> Which would be a little insulting, right? You know, you guys, you know, I don't know how clean you even are. I don't, you know, I, I, you know I, I shouldn't be here. Uh, you know, but God has shown me I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. So he's starting to connect this, see, that's why. It wasn't just that. He started understanding what God was trying to say with him with this vision. Still, I don't think they thought they could be saved. It just means I guess they're not as dirty as we think they are. Right? All right, I guess they don't have weird diseases. They're not so filthy. God loves people. I don't know how, but he loves those guys. And I'm not supposed to call you unclean. All right. So, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection because all this supernatural stuff. And then he goes, uh, so what do you want? <laughs> I have to understand. He didn't go there to preach the gospel. They didn't think they could hear the gospel. It wouldn't make any difference to them. They're just above squirrels and snakes, for heaven's sakes. You know, God had to give me a vision just to realize I'm not going to get cooties around these people. So I'm here. I don't want to be here. I got my, my boys with me. And what do you want? And Cornelius answered, well, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter goes, wow, I, I realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the ones who fear him and does what's right. Well, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. They'd heard this stuff. So he's just reinforcing what this message is spreading everywhere, who's Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning at Galilee after baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people that testif and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets, talking about the Old Testament, you know, all the writings, testify about him that everyone who believes in him should receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, he didn't say, well, now every head bowed and every eye closed. We want the musicians to come back up as we start playing again. As we start, you know, there was none of that. I don't know what he thought would even happen. He wasn't going for a big close or anything. He's doing what, he's put in this uncomfortable situation. What's the gospel? He starts telling the gospel in a nutshell. And while he is still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. Boom! How do they know the Holy Spirit came on them? Because they smiled? Because they had a glow about their face? No, the circumcised believers, the other Jews who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured even out on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. All right, it's kind of hard to escape this. I know hardcore Pentecostals get real intense about this and say if you don't, you know, the most extreme ones, if you don't speak in tongues, you're going to hell. So I mean, no one's saying that, no one's advocating. All I'm saying is biblically without a question. It was the major sign that let them know that they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, talk about messing with your order here. You're first supposed to say a prayer, and then you got to get baptized, and then we lay hands on speaking in tongues. These cats, he's still preaching. All of a sudden, they just start speaking in tongues. I don't know. <laughs> God's going to do what God wants to do. 
So, well, then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water at this point. They're already speaking in tongues, for heaven's sakes. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So this is a big stinking deal. This is a major moment in the Christian experience. I mean, like you can't imagine. For these people, one thing with the Samaritans, other kind of Jews, but I mean, for them to get to the point where you could have a non-Jew experience God like this, this is going, this is radical, seriously radical. Now, chapter 11, verse 1, the apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Yeah, it didn't take long for this word to get out there. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, they always refer to circumcised and uncircumcised. It just means Jewish and non-Jewish. Why they got to refer to the status of their wieners, I have no idea. (laughs) But the circumcised believers who had the proper willies criticized them. And said, you went into the house of an, again with the willies, uncircumcised men, and ate with them. So they were mad. They called him on the carpet. What are you doing? And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now, the Bible is really repetitive at times. (laughs) And we're going to skip over this. If you want to read it, read it. I just read it to you. They just rewrite everything that just happened. All right? So uh, we'll jump to verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. In other words, with the speaking in tongues. Then I remember what the Lord had said. He said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave the same gift He gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, (laughs) this issue is not over. It's still going to hit the fan. And there's going to be a bigger, bigger fan experience coming in a couple of chapters, where they're really wrestling with this. And then they make this big ruling, which we'll read about, that kind of sets things straight. But even then, it didn't stop. This goes on and on and on. There was a segment of people who just could not accept this. What they finally, you know, they said, oh, well, God's doing things. Well, they went back just long enough to figure it out. Said, well, okay, you can believe, but you still have to fix your willies. And you have to become a Jew. And you have to obey the rules and all this other stuff like that. And this became the central argument in the uh, New Testament church. Because this shift from all these guys to this new idea that anybody, anybody like you and me could come and know Jesus, wow, was extremely radical. And it had a major impact. And, and, uh, and we'll, we'll go into this. It was actually this that really made the Jews angry. It's really the fundamental reason. You don't hear this much. Even from historians, they don't seem to catch this. We'll see this in these sermons, that Paul is preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, and they're all listening. They, they weren't yelling about that. It wasn't until he got to the point where he says, now God has poured this out to the Gentiles to be saved, and that's when they'd go psycho. And he's not throwing things at him, wanting to kill him and stuff like that. I mean, this was the determining factor. They didn't have a problem believing Jesus was the Messiah. That is not why the bulk of Jews rejected Christianity. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is a shocker. The main reason they rejected Christianity is because they let squirrels like you and me in the door without having to do what they do. And they couldn't get their heads around it because they had such a tie to this law that they were raising in all their lives and uh, they just couldn't get past it. So, uh, so okay, well, uh, that's, that's what happened. Now, so we pick it up in verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, thanks to Saul, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, was really spreading out. We'll see it on the big fancy map next week, assuming I get it. Spreading the word only among Jews, even after they saw this, they still, 
okay, I guess they can get in, but let's go preach to the Jews. And that's what they did. That's what drove them. It was rather stunning. Now, that was the main group of them. But then we find the cheaters. <laughs> Some of them, it says in verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began telling the story to the Greeks too. <gasps> telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of the Greeks believed and turned to the Lord. Well, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. Holy cow, this is going everywhere. So then uh, they sent to Barnabas, they sent uh, Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas is where? Anybody remember? We just read it. He's, he's at Tarsus with Saul. Remember they said Barnabas and Saul to Tarsus. That's where they're hanging out. So they go to Barnabas. and said, man, uh, go, go check this out. So, uh, so that's what they go get him. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of uh, God, what, what, the, what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of the people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas, he goes back to Tarsus to look for Saul. He's Saul's buddy. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So come on, man. This is where it's happening. Antioch is kicking. It's smoking. People are getting saved all over the place. We are having a blast. I'm going back get to Saul. Because, man, if there's one guy who can preach, it's Saul. Man, that guy can bring it. I mean, he knew it. it was, and we'll just read the rest of the New Testament, which we're going to do. You'll see Saul was rather intelligent. So he goes to get Saul, and they go up there, and now they're having a blast. So Paul sends Tarsus to look for Saul. He finds him. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is the first time uh, among all these uh, non-Jewish people, believers, that they gave them the name Christians, which has stuck for these some 2,000 years. And that's the first time anybody had used that phrase. Well, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, down from Jerusalem. You'll see on the map, it's way up <laughs> to Antioch. But when you're the center of the universe, everything's down from you. Because <laughs> they were Jerusalem. Ooh. So they actually went up, this is down, up, way up to Antioch. Uh, one of them, named Agabus, was a prophet. He stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. He puts parenthetically, uh, the disciples, as each of them was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Uh, they did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is a major thing. Thousands of believers now. It's spreading like crazy. Christianity is just getting started. Remember, these people in a handful of years literally, literally turned the world upside down on its head. The Romans, who tried desperately to knock it out and destroy it, it wasn't very long before Christianity conquered the entire Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, it's stunning, just historically, what happens in these first, you know, uh, 100 years and then a few hundred years after it. It is, it is quite amazing. So they're up there, and all these people are becoming Christians. And these prophets come and say, you know, the Lord has told us that these guys are going to be having this big famine. So all these non-Jews who the people in Judea weren't all that comfortable with, raised a big offering and sent all that money to these Jewish believers and who were having a really hard time during this famine. And that's how God took care of these uh, Christian believers, Jewish Christian believers in Judea. And it was just a way for them to say, hey, we love you guys, you know. And it's amazing, even to this day, one of the greatest supporters, financially, morally, uh, uh, politically are Christians to the Jewish nation to this very day. You know, we, are con we constantly remember where our faith came from. And most Christians have a great deal of respect uh, for the Jewish people and their struggles and stuff. And maybe even unfairly, some people would think uh, over everybody else. But again, it's who we are. It is our faith heritage comes from that. And we know at some point it's all going to turn around for them. We just don't know when. Uh, so that's what they did, and it was a big deal for them to do this, and I'm sure it had a major impact on the Jews at, at the time. All right. Well, then the persecution starts flaring up again, which was always the case. They would have periods of great persecution, times of great peace, great persecution. Uh, 
historically, which would exceed the writings here. Remember, the entire Old Testament was written over thousands of years. The entire New Testament is written over a period of like 60 years, 70 years. I mean, it's just an, a, a sneeze of what the Old Testament was written in. was all in this congested period of time. Everything we're going to read all happened right here. So we don't know the history, biblically, of what happens after this, but you can see and study it, you know, how the Christians were persecuted by the Romans, and they'd throw them to the lions, and they built these secret tunnels, and the more they tried to stomp it out, the more it would spread, and again, they eventually uh, toppled the entire Roman Empire. So uh, we're about to get into another situation where King Herod, we've had some problems with Herod in the past, uh, starts showing up, and he discovers, oh, it's an unpopular thing to, to persecute Christians. So he starts persecuting them. And, uh, and we'll read what happens. And it's really fascinating. There's some amazing stuff that happens here. Uh, and then, again, this major shift in the storyline starts shifting almost exclusively to Paul and the Gentiles. And, uh, and even some of the major leaders in the church are no longer the apostles. It's quite stunning. Just right about this time, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, which I'll explain to you for those of you who don't understand how that works, uh, becomes the main voice in the, uh, in the Jewish church in Jerusalem, uh, and it, which is stunning. Again, it's like the, the apostles. You would think the apostles would be the guys. They start, I'm sure God continued to use them in mighty ways. Historically, it says he did. But how the storyline changes and that's how some of these others started rising up kind of messes your head. I don't understand it because you think the apostles would be the ones that would all be circling around, but it didn't. And uh, more and more names of people no one expected. James, Paul, uh, Jude, some of these guys that start popping up uh, uh, that weren't on anybody's radar become the major voices in the push uh, in the spread of Christianity, which we will pick up again next week. All right? God bless you guys. See you Sunday, and again, see you next Wednesday night. Bye-bye.